Yeshua's view of the temple is what I want to talk about today. This sermon I'm going to talk about right now is going to be a introductory to what I'm going to talk about on Friday on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, let me say by way of reminder, this Thursday evening to Friday evening, from evening to evening, that will be when we celebrate Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. No work. It's just like a Sabbath. The only difference is that there's an affliction of the soul, which traditionally that's done with fasting and also some other things as well. Um, I did bring some CDs of a sermon that I taught last year on the Day of Atonement. They're back there with the books, so if you want to grab one of those CDs and take it home with you and listen to that CD before atonement gets here, I think that'll be a great thing. The name of the sermon is Have We Denied the Messiah? Because a lot of people think that when you observe the Day of Atonement now, that it's the denial of the Messiah. And I deal with that, I think, in an extremely exhaustive way in that sermon. So make sure to pick one up there. But today I want to talk about Yeshua's view of the temple, the Messiah's view of the temple, the temple that used to be in Jerusalem. The temple that was standing, it was called Herod's temple in the day of Christ. It was called Solomon's temple back in the days of Solomon. Solomon was the first man, I believe, to build the stabilized temple of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. Prior to that temple, there was something called the tabernacle in the wilderness. Yes, the tabernacle came before the temple, but the tabernacle was mobile. It could be moved. It was kind of a big tent. I remember when I was a little boy going to tent meetings. My granddaddy was a tent man. He was one of the guys that put up the tent so that we could have a church meeting under the tent. But it was mobile. It would move from place to place. That's how the tabernacle in the wilderness was. It had a lot of things in it. It had the table of showbread. It had two holy places in it. One was holier than the other. It contained the Ark of the Covenant and other holy vessels. The temple was very important during the Old Covenant. Nobody argues that. For instance, in Psalm 5, verse 7, it says, I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. In Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. In 1 Kings 9, verse 3, Solomon, after he prayed in 1 Kings 8, the very, very long prayer, in 1 Kings 9, we receive Yahweh's answer to Solomon's prayer. And this is what Yahweh said. Yahweh answered Solomon and he says this, I have heard your prayer and petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. That's Yahweh. That's what he said. And if he said that, I believe it with all of my heart. That temple was and is, and it continues to be, in spite of its not even being built today. The location of that temple continues to be a holy place. And it will be built again in the future. We know that there does not exist a temple in Jerusalem, Yahweh's city. There doesn't exist a temple there today, the place where it was built in Solomon's day. And because of this, many people believe that the holiness of the temple has come and it has gone. Those days have passed and a new, more spiritual dimension is now. All of that was just as people say in Christianity. That was only types and shadows of greater things that were to come in Christ. And they speak the word type and shadow in a derogatory way, in a negative way. And I don't believe that that is 
the way that we should talk about the temple or the vessels within it, not in a derogatory or a negative fashion. I want you to keep in mind that our view of the temple should be the view that Yeshua held. That's what I want to talk about today. Whatever view that Christ held or took of the temple should be the view that we take. So did Yeshua, during his ministry, begin to share with his followers that the temple was outdated, it was primitive, it was no longer valid? Did he speak of a time when the temple should not hold a special place in the hearts and minds of believers in Yahweh? Keep in mind that in the days of Daniel, I've taught a lot on Daniel, I think 21 sermons on the book of Daniel, and not through yet, but I took a break, a breather from Daniel. But in the days of Daniel, the temple had been destroyed. It had been destroyed. It had been annihilated. It was no longer there in Jerusalem. And the Israelites had been captured by a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was a heathen, pagan, Babylonian king. Many of the Israelites had been scattered throughout other areas of the known world in that day. Yet, obviously, that did not mean that the sanctity and the spiritual meaning of the temple was over with. Remember when I taught on Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel three times a day would pray to God, but it wasn't just prayer to God. He would open his window and he would face towards Jerusalem when he prayed. There was a reason that he did that, and the reason he did that was because that was where the temple of Yahweh was supposed to be. Yahweh dwelt in that temple. So it was still a special place, even though it wasn't there during the Babylonian captivity. And I believe that it is still a special place now according to the words of the prophets and according to the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Look at Luke 2, verse 41. That's where we're going to start here today. The Bible says, Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem. And this is talking about our Messiah. His parents traveled to Jerusalem every year for the Passover festival. Why did they travel to Jerusalem? Well, that was the central location of, out of all the tribes, or not necessarily the central location, but that was the appointed location. Out of all the tribes in the land of Canaan, three times a year they would go there, especially the males and often the, also the wife and the children, would go there on Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, spring, summer, and fall. Three feasts in the year. So that's why his parents would go to Jerusalem. In verse 42 it says when he was 12 years old they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over as they were returning the boy Yeshua stayed behind in Jerusalem but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. You know, I had some people tell me one time, or a person in, in particular tell me one time, that the Messiah committed a sin here because he was being disobedient to his parents and that he should not have stayed behind in Jerusalem. And this came up not long ago as well. And what that view does is ignores the... There's about three or four scriptures that teach us that the Messiah never committed sin. And I was on the phone with Brother Arnold last night as I was reading back over this verse. And, of course, I knew that Yeshua never committed sin, obviously. The Scriptures are very, very forthright on that. The sinless Son of Yahweh, the Lamb of Yahweh, He takes away sin. He doesn't commit sin. But I thought to myself, and I told Brother Arnold, I said, let's suppose that me and my wife and my five children and 
some other people that are relatives to us went to a feast away from Conyers, went to a feast, and, and when the feast was over, we left, and I just assumed that Benjamin was with me. Benjamin's 11 years old. Let's say I left him at the feast, and I just assumed that he was with us, and then I got about three hours down the road, and I looked at Tisha, and I said, why don't you check and see if Benjamin's in the car? And I look back, and he's not there. Well, it wouldn't be Benjamin's fault. It would be mine and my wife's fault. <laughs> so if anybody was in sin here, it would be Joseph and Mary, not Yeshua. He's 12 years old. They should have made sure that they had their child with them before they left Jerusalem. They just assumed he was in the traveling party, and he wasn't. Verse 45 says, When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. So he wasn't being rambunctious or anything. He was in the temple. And it says the temple complex, and he was sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47, And all those who heard him were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And in verse 49, he says, Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Verse 49, he says, I had to be in my father's house. King James Version says, Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Now, the word business or the word house is actually not in the Greek. Either one is in the Greek New Testament. It literally just says, did you not know that I had to be at my father's or in my father's? Probably at would be a better translation. Most translations supply the word house because of the context of Yeshua being in the temple complex. I'm not saying that business is a bad translation. Being in the temple would be being about his father's business, okay? But I think house is probably more along the lines of what the text is saying. So what Yeshua here, even at 12 years old, and even at this point, his mother and his father still did not understand or comprehend exactly what he was going to do, exactly how powerful of a person he really was. They kept these things in their heart, as you read on it said. And Yeshua went with them, and he was subject to them. He was submissive to them because he was their child. They were his parents. Mary was his mother. Joseph was his father by law or by legality. Yeshua here recognized the temple as the house of his father, his heavenly father, Yahweh, the one that birthed him, the one that begot him supernaturally. In the books of Matthew and Luke, there at the beginning of those gospels, it talks about how that Yeshua was birthed through a virgin woman, a woman that had never known a man intimately. That's pretty miraculous, pretty powerful. And so here he says, why were you searching for me? Why were you so anxious? Didn't you know? that I would be at my father's house, the temple. He viewed the temple as his father's house. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. It says, Yeshua went into the temple complex. Let me just point out right here for a second. Some Bibles might say temple. He just went into the temple. Temple complex is fine. The temple complex is not just talking about the two holy places in the temple, the holy place and the most holy place but also several courtyards in the temple or around the temple and, and a lot of covered walkways as well when you study the structures of the temple. So that's what it's referring to. But he says he went into the temple complex and he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. 
When you look at this and read before and after, this is right before the time of Passover. This is actually, I believe I can show where this is on the 10th day of the month of A.B., of the first month on Yahweh's calendar. And he drives out everybody that's buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, it was not wrong for people to sell animals during the time of the Passover. As a matter of fact, Yahweh's law stipulated that if the place that Yahweh put his name, which was Jerusalem, was too far for you to carry all of your tithe, like all of your, your produce and your, your flock, then you could sell the tithe, exchange it into money or silver at that time, and then when you got to the feast at Jerusalem, you could take that silver and you could buy whatever your soul desired, oxen, sheep, wine, beer, things of that nature. And so people would come to the feast and they would have silver that was actually something that they had sold their tithe and got, and they would buy animals for sacrifice, doves, sheep, oxen. So it wasn't wrong for the people there in Jerusalem to be selling. But I think it's either one of two things here that's going on. Number one, it's either the place that they were selling them was wrong. They should not have been selling them in the temple complex, as we're going to see here in a second. Or it could have been that they were thieving people in their sales, selling things for too much, an unjust weight and an unjust measure. Let me show you why I say that. Verse 13 says, And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Now notice that Yeshua says, It is written. And the places that it is written in is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. He quotes from two passages here, and both of those passages teach that Yahweh's house is to be a solemn place, his temple is to be a solemn place, is to be a house of prayer, and it's not to be a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Okay? Basically, that's what Yeshua was saying. So this leads me to think that they were being unjust in what they were selling. They were maybe making too much of a profit off of the animals or off of the doves and what have you. But notice how he uplifts his father's temple. He says, it's written. And he's quoting from a place where Yahweh is speaking. In Isaiah 56 and 7, Yahweh says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And so Yeshua is quoting Yahweh. My house is to be a house of prayer, Yahweh says. But you've turned it into a den of robbers, a den of thieves, a, a place of merchandise. Notice he again uplifts the temple. Yeshua does. doesn't bring it down. Look now to John chapter 2. John 2, verse 13, the Bible says, The Jewish Passover was near. Here again, this is not an identical parallel to Matthew 21. It's going to sound similar, and it is at a Passover, but it's not the same Passover. The one in Matthew 21 was right before Yeshua was crucified on the cross. This one was earlier in his ministry. But it says, The Jewish Passover was near, so Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. Right? like any good Judahite man would do. He goes up to the place that Yahweh chose to keep the feast. He was a law keeper. Verse 14, In the temple complex he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove out everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. 
Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, before we read the next verse, this lends credence to the idea that they should not have been making these sales in the temple. Now, when I went to Matthew 21, I said it could have been that they were committing thievery in their sales, but this verse right here shows us through the words of our Messiah that even though it was okay to be selling these animals for sacrifice and these doves for sacrifice at Passover time, they should not have been using his father's house as a marketplace. In other words, this is a holy place. That's what the Messiah is saying. This place is set apart. It's sanctified. It's consecrated. Go out into the streets and sell what you sell. Go out into the streets and do the work of a money changer, but don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. You see how he uplifted the father's temple, the father's house? Look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's in Psalm 69, verse 9. The disciples, when they saw what Yeshua did, how he made that whip out of cords and how he beat those guys out of there and just overturned the, the tables and the money all fell out. The disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, as we call it in the Psalms. Zeal for your house has consumed me. So not only did Yeshua uplift the house of Yahweh, the temple, he was zealous for the house of Yahweh. He was zealous for the temple. To be zealous for something means that you burn with passion for it. You know, I like to think that I'm zealous for the law of Yahweh, the commandments of God. That means I burn with passion for them. I want to do them. I want to obey them. Yeshua had that zeal for His Father's house. Look now to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 37, beginning at verse 37. It says this. This is our Lord speaking again. In verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You have to remember, Matthew 23 is a chapter that is dedicated to Yeshua rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocritical living. How that they're always pointing fingers and wanting everybody else to do everything right, but in their lives they're doing everything not right, doing everything wrong. The chief priests, the leaders in Israel are doing wrong. So he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets, you've stoned people that sent to you. And he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Some people try to use this verse in a wrong way, a deceptive way, I believe, to say that Yahweh wants to gather somebody together, but because they're not willing, Yahweh doesn't have the power to do it. But when they quote the verse, they leave out your children. He doesn't say how often I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. No, he says, how often would I want to gather your children together, but you were not willing. See, So Yahweh, if he wanted to gather somebody's children, he could, but that doesn't mean that the parents of the children or the scribes and the Pharisees in this context would be willing if that took place. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. The house there, I'm going to say, it refers to the temple. That's what he's referring to. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. My Bible says Lord here. That's a quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24, where the psalmist used the Tetragrammaton, the name of Yahweh, the divine name. Yeshua came in the name of Yahweh. 
Chapter 24, verse 1. Thought continues. As Yeshua left and was going out of the temple complex. See, when he said your house is going to be left to you desolate, it was a word of rebuke and a word of condemnation. And what he was saying was this. Just as it happened in the past, when Israel rebelled, when they did wrong, the temple would be destroyed. It was a punishment. It wasn't something good taking place. It was because they would not set their heart and their mind to do Yahweh's way. He would rip the temple from them. That's why the Israelites went into Babylonian captivity, right? Because they did not obey Yahweh, specifically in the sabbatical land rest. So he said, okay, I'll strip you from your land and I'll remove your temple. Likewise, that's what Yeshua is talking about here. Your house is going to be left desolate because you've not accepted me for who I am, the Son of Yahweh, the Messiah. And you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. It continues in 24.1, says, His disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. It's a word of rebuke and a word of punishment. The leaders in Israel are not accepting me as the son of Yahweh. So punishment is going to have to come. History is going to repeat itself. My point here is this, is that Yeshua spoke of the desolation of the temple as something bad, something that you were being punished for. He uplifted his father's temple. To take it away would be a bad thing. Look at John chapter 4. Some people go to John 4 and try to say that the sanctity of the temple is no longer valid. I disagree with that interpretation. John 4, verse 19, beginning at verse 19, this is the story of the woman at the well. And it says, Sir, the woman replied, this is the woman speaking to the Messiah, I see that you are a prophet. And he was. You know, sometimes we don't think of Yeshua as a prophet, but he is the prophet likened unto Moses of Deuteronomy 18, when you compare that with Acts chapter 3. But she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and that mountain she's talking about is Mount Gerizim, because she is a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans had some bad dealings with the Judahites, and the Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim, based upon a misunderstanding of some text in the Torah, they believed Mount Gerizim, was the place that was to be sanctified and called holy and not Jerusalem. Well, that was wrong. We're going to see that in a second. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you, Judahites, say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Yeshua told her, verse 21, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming. And when he says woman there, (laughs) we say woman nowadays, that's a derogatory thing. If somebody says, Listen, woman, in the days of Yeshua, when you would address a, a lady by that title, that was like saying ma'am now. Like when, when we teach our children to say, excuse me, ma'am, or yes, ma'am, that's how this word is used in the days of Yeshua. So this was a, a title of honor. And we need to point this out because there's a time where Yeshua refers to Miriam, his mother, by saying woman, before he does the miracle of turning the water into the wine. And some people there again misinterpret because they just don't understand. But when you look at the culture, that was just like when we say ma'am today. Okay, so he's giving her honor here. Believe me, woman, ma'am. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, I think he's prophesying here of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Personally, that's what I think. 
I don't think he's doing away with the sanctity of Jerusalem because that would violate Yahweh's word through the prophets, specifically Ezekiel, Isaiah, etc. But he's simply prophesying of a time, an hour, so to speak, a time period, not a literal 60-minute hour, but a time period, when people will worship the Father neither on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. I think we're in that time right now. It's the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. After the second coming of Christ, we will again worship in Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 22, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, you guys got it wrong. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Judahites. So the Judahites have it right. They worship the right place in Jerusalem. Yeshua would go to Jerusalem as we read earlier. Verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is here, or is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And notice here on a side note how that Yeshua is constantly pointing to the Father. He said the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit. He wasn't talking about Himself. He was standing there as a human being, a flesh and blood person. He was talking about His Father. God is spirit. Those that worship Him, God, the Father, have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now that doesn't mean that God is a mist or something like that. He's a spiritual being. The angels are spiritual beings. Okay, they're made in the image and likeness, I believe, of Yahweh, and we're made in the image and likeness of Yahweh and the angelic beings, according to the Scriptures. But it means this, is that Yahweh is spirit and He is omnipresent. He can be everywhere. And those that worship Him truly, whether it's in Jerusalem or whether it's in Conyers, need to worship Him like that. They need to recognize His omnipresence, that He is spirit. And they also must worship Him in truth. Okay? So Yeshua says, an hour is coming, and notice He says and is now here. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, that's going on now. There's some people that are worshiping in Jerusalem in the days of Yeshua that are worshiping in spirit, recognizing Yahweh's omnipresence, and they're also worshiping in truth. Okay? But there'll be a time coming when they won't worship in Jerusalem nor at Mount Gerizim. Why? Because, once again, Yeshua prophesied about it in Matthew 23 and 24, The house would be left desolate because the chief priests and the leaders are the ones that would cry out, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas the murderer instead because we want him to be released instead of the son of Yahweh. We don't accept the son of Yahweh. We do not believe that he is the Messiah, the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so he says, because the leaders in Israel do not believe in who who I am, punishment will come upon them, and it did in A.D. 70, Titus and the Roman armies came in, destroyed the city, killed several hundreds of thousands of people. And the temple was desecrated and destroyed. And it was a punishment. It wasn't a good thing. Thanks be to Yahweh, as I taught on in the book of Daniel chapter 9, that temple will be rebuilt at a future time. And Yeshua will sanctify the most holy place according to the prophecy. And it will be here on earth in Jerusalem for 1,000 years as Yeshua rules and reigns here on this planet. In righteousness. The reason that Yeshua, and I'm going to close with this, the reason that Yeshua uplifted his father's house. Remember, he said, didn't you know I was at my father's house? Why are you making my father's house a den of thieves? Why are you making it into a place of merchandise? Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
When you do wrong, you're punished by a removal of the temple. All of those things show that Yahweh held the temple in high esteem and that His Son Yeshua held the temple in high esteem. And that we should hold it in high esteem even though it's not there right now. We could do exactly like Daniel and pray towards the place that that temple will one day be in the future. A big reason though why it's spoken of in that level of sanctity is because people in the Scriptures and we now should understand that the earthly temple is a copy or a shadow of the heavenly temple. Now, in our thought, in our culture, people say that derogatorily. Like when you keep the Sabbath or the feast days, they say, oh, that's just shadows. That's just shadows of things to come. But in Hebrew thought, a shadow or a copy was something prestigious. Let me give you an example. This is an example I've given to people. It helps people understand. When I go on trips, when we went to North Carolina not long ago, or when I go out of state or out of town and, and I don't have my wife and my children with me, I like to take along with me pictures of my family. And at night before I go to bed, I'll look through my pictures. It might be just two or three of them, but I'll look through my pictures. They're copies. That's not really my family. That's an image of my family. That's a copy or a shadow of my family. It's definitely not as good as the original. I would much rather hug my children and kiss my wife. But at least it gives me something to look at to remember my children before I go to sleep as I pray over them. Well, that will give you a little bit of, of a glimpse at how a copy and a shadow was looked at in Hebraic thought, in Jewish thought. It was a prestigious thing, not a derogatory thing at all. The earthly temple is a copy or a shadow of the heavenly temple. Let me read just a couple of scriptures to show you that. One is in Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus, I'll read these as I get to them. Just listen carefully. Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. Yahweh says through Moses, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. When the tabernacle or the temple stands, that's the earthly place where Yahweh's presence dwells. Now, I'm not saying that it houses all of Yahweh's presence. I'm not saying that Yeshua, the Messiah, even as a man, houses all of Yahweh's presence, but as much as a man can take. And the temple as much as a temple can take. If you ask the first century Judahite, where did Yahweh dwell? He would point you to the temple. The Bible even says at the end of Exodus and beginning of Leviticus that when everything was put in place exactly how Yahweh wanted, the candlestick and the showbread and all that was put in place, it said that the glory of Yahweh filled the temple in such a thick cloud that the priest could not even stand inside of it to minister before Yahweh because they couldn't see. It was too thick with the presence of Yahweh. You do Yahweh's ways properly, He rewards you with His presence, with His dwelling presence. That's where Yahweh dwelled then. That's where He would dwell again in the future. Verse 9 in Exodus 25, You must make it according to all that I show you, the design of the tabernacle as well as the design of all its furnishings. I believe, and we'll get to that in a second, but I believe that when Moses went up on the mountaintop, and it was cloudy. I think it was just more than literal clouds. I don't think he got up there and said, Man, you know, it, it's awful foggy up here. Now, I think that Yahweh allowed, in a manner of speaking, the heavens to be bent to where that Moses could step into the presence of Yahweh. And Yahweh would show him all the furnishings in the heavenly tabernacle. 
And he would say, you see this heavenly candlestick? You're to make a candlestick on earth that represents or is a copy of this heavenly one. That's why Yahweh said you make it according to the design. Your Bible might say the pattern. The pattern. Now we begin to see and maybe understand why Moses' face shone so much when he came down off of that mountain. Why he had to take a veil and cover over his face to speak with the children of Israel? Why? Because it was the glory of Almighty Yahweh that he had encountered up on top of that mountain. Hallelujah. Exodus 25, verse 40. Yahweh says again, Be careful to make everything according to the model of them you have been shown on the mountain. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Listen very carefully. He says, Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Notice once again, you have a throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the Father. Yeshua sat down when He went to heaven at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Okay? Verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up and not man. Yeshua doesn't minister in the earthly tabernacle. He ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. He does the job of the Melchizedek priesthood not on the earthly tabernacle, but in the one that is even greater than the earthly. It's better than the earthly. It's the pattern that the earthly one was designed after. That's where Yeshua ministers. The one that the Lord, the one that Yahweh set up, and not a human being. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He offered his own blood. Verse 4, Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Do you see how the author of Hebrews is not violating the Torah? People use the book of Hebrews to say, well, the Torah has been done away with. But the author of Hebrews makes it very plain. If Yeshua was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Why? He's not from the right lineage. He doesn't minister in the earthly tabernacle. He ministers in the one that was the pattern in the heavenly tabernacle. He's the priest in that tabernacle. But if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Why? He's from Judah. He's not from Levi. He's not from Aaron. Since there are those offerings offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Verse 5. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for he said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Hebrews validates what I just gave as an understanding of Exodus 25, 1-9 and verse 40 that the earthly is a copy and shadow of the heavenly. And brothers and sisters, if there was a place on the earth that you could go that was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, who wouldn't want to go there? I'd be first in line. Line me up. How much are the tickets? (laughs) So to speak. Let me get in there. This is a pattern of the actual tabernacle where Yahweh dwells. Not the original, but yet a copy. And it was a prestigious thing. Look at Hebrews 9. Last verse. Hebrews 9, verse 18. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. That goes back to Exodus 24. You want to check that out. Verse 19. For when every commandment had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself 
and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the vessels of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verse 23. Listen to this. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. Do you see this? The sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, were never intended to purify anything as it pertains to the heavenly tabernacle. Only the earthly. Only the earthly. And notice the author says it was necessary for the copies, that is the earthly, the earthly things, the copies of the things in the heavens, to be purified with these sacrifices, and that's talking about animal sacrifices. But only as it pertains to the earthly. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, that's not to say that the earthly ones were not good. They did exactly what Yahweh wanted them to do. But they never took away sin. There's better sacrifice than an animal. That's the Son of Yahweh, see? Hallelujah. I don't know how to put it any better than I heard one minister put it one time. That's like me trying to change one of these light bulbs here in the church and telling TJ, I said, bring me a hammer. I need to change the light bulb. So what do you need a hammer for? You don't use a hammer to change a light bulb. It's not needed in that context, in that parameter. Does that mean a hammer's not good? No, a hammer's good. It can be used for a lot of things, but changing the light bulb's not one of them. Right? The animal sacrifices didn't purify anything as it pertained to the heavenly sanctuary. That didn't mean they were, they were not good. It's just that something was better. See, I love ice cream. Anybody like ice cream? I like chocolate ice cream, but I like vanilla better. Kosher vanilla better. Hallelujah. <laughs> I like vanilla better. A lot of people say, you like vanilla better? Yes, I love vanilla ice cream. That doesn't mean I won't eat chocolate. I like chocolate, but vanillas I like better. See, The earthly sanctuary is good. Those sacrifices are good. They have a reason to be there, but there's a sanctuary that's better. There's a sacrifice that's better. There's a sacrifice that purifies not just the flesh, but it purifies the conscience and the spirit. That's the Son of Yahweh. That's the Son of Yahweh. We need to understand, verse 24, For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. That word model there in verse 24, many times in the New Testament, it's translated as an example. The earthly sanctuary, the earthly tabernacle, is an example. It's a copy. It's a shadow of something that's greater. It doesn't mean that it's that it's derogatory. It doesn't mean that it's bad. We saw that Yeshua viewed that earthly sanctuary and that earthly temple as being holy. But there's something that's more holy. And that's the heavenly one. That's the one that Yahweh said, Moses, look at this. This is how I want you to make that. Which one came first? The heavenly one. The one that Yahweh pitched and not man. Now, this is going to help you out tremendously. It's going to help you out tremendously going into the Day of Atonement message. We're going to talk about some things in the book of Hebrews that I've seen over the past year or two I've never seen before. And I think they're legitimate and I think they're going to be good. Thanks be to Yahweh for the heavenly tabernacle. Amen. Thanks be to Yahweh for the blood of His own Son. And thanks be to Yahweh for the earthly tabernacle too. He said, you make it so that I can dwell on earth. It will be here again at one time in the future. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I love you. I love your people. I love your word. Bring us back here again Friday on the Day of Atonement, Father. I pray that we would all have a good fast from Thursday evening to Friday evening. And Father, that we would just remember what it's all about. Uh, Father Yahweh, that we would recollect on how wretched we are and how we do need atonement and how that you've given it to us through your only begotten Son, Yeshua the Messiah. And Father, it's through him that we pray this prayer to you right now. Amen. Yahweh bless you.